Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. (sighs) What the heck are we supposed to do with that? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. joined by Glenn Powell. Our friend Paul is on vacation this week, watching golf or something like that. So uh, the two of us are going to tackle something that we learned about relatively recently called the redemptive movement hermeneutic and unpack specifically how it relates to the thorny issue of slavery in the Bible. Glenn, can you share a little bit of the backstory about how we learned about this idea? Yeah, it's really interesting how these ideas come to us. Um, Just to show how important it is to be in a community, including a community of scholars. I mean, I think of the scholarly community, the academic community in Christianity is one part of the body that that we need to listen to. They serve a specific function. So one of the things the Institute does is have conversations with scholars, small, intimate gatherings, um, nor we set the table with a particular issue. And then the Institute folks sit back and listen to the scholars discuss this. And we learn so much from them. Helps us all, I think, to read and live the, the Bible well. So at one of these events, David Fitch from Northern Seminary was with us. And I think this whole event was talking about how does the story in the Bible work? And then yeah. David stood up and kind of asked the group, which is like 15 to 20 top biblical scholars. And he just says... Okay, does anybody think that William Webb's idea of the redemptive movement hermeneutic doesn't work? Like anybody have a problem or a major issue with that? And so he's kind of challenging the group to just say, does this, is this a good thing for us or not? And I remember thinking, wait, what? What is, who is William Webb and what's the redemptive movement hermeneutic? I had never heard of this, right? And I try to read a lot and do things and I thought, wow, this is why we do these events, because even in an offhand comment that we didn't even know enough to ask for, we learned something really important. And so we're going to try to unpack that today. Yeah. Yeah. So we we left that conference. Obviously, I think we probably got on Amazon, like on our phones or something, right? (laughs) Right. And started started looking up William Webb and the Redemptive Movement Hermeneutic. And uh, he's got a couple of books specifically addressing uh, some things through this, through this idea, but I actually think it would be helpful to set the stage for our conversation with a different book by historian Mark Knoll. And he has this just really interesting book about the slavery debates in the mm. civil war period where he, he kind of gets into the intense theological battles going on between pro-slave Christians and, and abolitionist Christians. Can you kind of unpack that book a little bit? Yeah, it's a great example. He has one chapter in that book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, in which he looks at the Bible specifically. And he says, look, there were two sides, both of them Christian, both of them claiming the support of the Bible. And so the abolitionists insisted that Scripture clearly runs counter to the gospel, the lifting up and the salvation of people in God's world and people being made in God's image. Um, This is incompatible with the gospel. But the pro-slavery side actually had way more Bible verses on their side. So right. if, if your strategy for understanding what is a biblical position on something is let's count verses and add them up, and that's what the biblical position is, 
then you're in the uncomfortable position of saying uh, the Bible seems to support slavery. And that's what the pro-slavery people were doing. And it was a hard place for the abolitionists to be to make a case biblically if you're if you're looking up verses and then counting how many there are, as that's what it means to have a biblical position on something, then you end up with the in the place that says scripture seems to support the ownership of humans of other humans. And this is this obviously seems very problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's not just limited to the the beginning of the Bible in, in the Old yeah. Testament. There's there's, of course, verses in Leviticus about buying male and female slaves from foreign countries. There's this really nasty uh, passage in in Exodus that says anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they're not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. And then wow. you think, wow, wow just, okay, that, that's that's a problem right there. Yeah, right? and then and then you get into the New Testament, and you know it's after Jesus, after the resurrection, and everything. And Paul seems to kind of take slavery for granted. There's that verse that I read at the beginning of the podcast where he's instructing mm. slaves to obey their masters. Um, he's not saying anything about, hey, everybody, go and free your slaves. So it's it's a thorny thing to work through if you're just piling up verses. Yeah, and especially for the Bible Reset podcast, where we've made a big deal out of reading through the Jesus lens, right? So you get the New Testament letters after Jesus, after right. the arrival of the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth, and they're still assuming that slavery is good and just giving instructions kind of for how to run the relationship of slave and master. So what happened to salvation and restoration and all those good things we talked about when you read the Bible through the Jesus lens. So yeah, it's it's a real thorny issue for us who take the Bible seriously. So, I mean, it, and you know, we, we shouldn't try to downplay it and say, well, it's not that bad. There's a few passages. I mean, these are seriously problematic positions. Number one, you know, humans are property. I mean, that, that passage you just read from Exodus, Right. Because because the slave is your property, you have the right to do harm to them, right? And the penalty only comes if they die, but not if they're beaten to within an inch of their life and they can stand up in two days, right? Right. Uh, there were penalties for hurting or killing slaves, but they were way less than penalties for hurting or killing other people. So a different valuation of human life. Israelite slaves were released every seven years, but foreign slaves were not. So mm. the year of release provision in Leviticus did not apply to them. And then, of course, we see slaves even being used, just used, to produce offspring for owners who were infertile and couldn't have children through their own wives. So um, clearly, the slave um, framework, the specific passages of slavery in the Bible— um, are not easily dismissed. And and this is something, of course, that we see people who are against Christianity, people who are against the Bible specifically, often go to these passages. They love to read them and quote them and say, wow, awesome book. This is just what our culture needs is more of a book like this. And they'll read one of these slave passages. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've all seen pictures of the billboards put up by, 
you know, the atheist group of New York City or whatever that kind of shoves the whole Bible away by citing some verses from Leviticus and just seeing, you know, showing look how ridiculous this whole whole book is, you know, yep. how how backwards it is and that sort of thing. And so one of the things I just wanted to add, Alex, there is I think, you know, Christians, we squirm when we when we read these, we feel uncomfortable and rightly so. Yeah. Um, one of the coping mechanisms that people will sometimes try is to say, okay, let's just lose the slave master language. And every time you read that in the Bible, just kind of think employer employee right. relationship as if that takes care of everything. Like, you know, employees obey your employer, you know, right. kind of do what they say, be a good, loyal, obedient employee. Right. right. Because that's the equivalent in the ancient world of what we have today. Yeah. But that doesn't really work. It doesn't quite work across the board, right? Like <laughs> employers, you can beat your employees within an inch of their life with a rod, right. but right. if they recover in a couple of days, yeah. then you know, that's why you have your uh, your health insurance plan for your I, I may have been tempted. I may have been tempted once or twice to beat my employer within an inch <laughs> right. of their lives, but luckily I didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I've, before I came across this whole idea of redemptive movement and that sort of thing, one of the things that, that I learned that I tried to use to cope with it was just some of the conditions of slavery in the ancient world and how it, mm. in some ways that they differed from the African slavery that we're more familiar with in in America and in the West and that sort of thing about how at, at times slaves could have more rights or have mm, high status as right, that's true. You know, leaders um, or, or managers, I guess, of an estate or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it really felt kind of thin, I guess. Yep. Yep. I so. think that's right. So yeah, there's, there's not, that's always of course an issue when we're reading the Bible is not to, to, we have to watch out for anachronism of yeah. reading back a situation we're familiar with and thinking that's what it was like in the Bible. Yeah. Um, and always trying to just say, no, what was it like in the Bible's own world? Because yeah. that's the world it was born to, right, within, and it spoke to. Yeah. All right. So if you're just piling up verses, things look pretty grim, I would say, for the Bible's view on slavery. And like I said earlier, for a lot of people, this is one of those things that's just kind of a deal breaker, right? If if the Bible supports slavery, yeah. then it's it's a no-go across the board for me. How do you think the, the redemptive movement can help address this in a more holistic way? Yeah, the redemptive movement hermeneutic, which just means a way of interpreting. So, I mean, it's this yeah. big, you know, fancy term, but it just means how do you interpret things? Um, and so I think what I wish had happened during the Civil War, I wish it happened every time the church has a discussion or a debate about what is the biblical teaching on something before we started just flinging verses at each other. I wish that we would first have a background discussion that says, wait, what kind of book is the Bible? And, and how should it be read? We need to have a shared understanding of the kind of book that the Bible actually is. And I think oftentimes the two sides in various debates, certainly in the Civil War slavery debate, had different ideas about what kind of book the Bible is and what is the right way to read it. The redemptive movement hermeneutic is a way of answering the question, what kind of book is the Bible? 
and what's the right way to read it? How does the Bible actually work? So there's two main ideas here. Um, the title is great. I love that it's kind of the meaning of it is built in, redemptive movement. So there's two key aspects to the redemptive movement hermeneutic. First of all, to read every part of the Bible, no matter where you are, in light of the ancient cultural setting that was in place at the time. So that's just non-negotiable. We have to read the Bible in the world in which it was written, because that's where those words were first heard and people made sense of them relative to the world around them. And then secondly, read the Bible in light of its own story movement. The Bible is a story that moves. So that's why the word movement is so important in this term. It's a redemptive story. It's a, it's a story that starts someplace and is heading someplace, but it doesn't get there instantaneously. The Bible does not instantly and immediately, from the very first page, tell us everything we need to know about God's ultimate intention for humanity, what restoration and redemption looks like. Instead, it's moving toward that. And so that's why it's such a critical difference in thinking, well, I get a biblical position by looking up verses and just reading them out of context, off the page, just what they say, a verse about beating your slave, versus reading the Bible as a story that is headed toward greater redemption through the work of Jesus the Messiah. And we're going to get to this New Testament part, because as we've already mentioned, that can be a tricky thing here. So there's redemptive movement relative to other cultures, and there's redemptive movement within the biblical story itself. So what we're going to do is try to take these up in order. Okay, so first of all, redemptive movement relative to other cultures. When we read about slavery, especially, say, in the First Testament or in the Torah, where all those laws are in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, it sounds pretty bad to us, right? So why don't you share yeah. one with us, uh, Alex? Yeah, so so there's this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you want to look it up, about uh, taking women as kind of spoils of war, I guess. So I'll, I'll just read it here. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head and trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Okay, so initial response, modern person, um, problematic, right? You're taking yep. a woman uh, from your enemy's side and then you're claiming her as your own. Um, I don't think there was any marriage proposal. There was no asking anybody. Right. There was not what, so we just have to realize, okay, this is what warfare was like. In the ancient world, it was assumed that victors could claim spoils, and spoils included slaves and specifically women as mm -hmm. property in this case. So it doesn't look good on first reading. But what we have to realize is what was the general cultural situation relative to women as slaves following a war or a battle? And here, 
we see that in the culture surrounding ancient Israel, places like Egypt, when we read um, the laws, which luckily we have this amazing collection of ancient material, not just from ancient Israel, but from the surrounding cultures, things mm-hmm. like creation stories, flood stories. And now we have this legal material that tells us what was and wasn't allowed or what was the general practice in these other cultures that surrounded Israel. And in those places, it was even worse for women. I mean, there were there were no protections at all. And, you know, the passage you just read, Alex, there's like built-in protections for the woman who is a yeah. foreigner and now has been taken as a slave. But we have to realize that the typical practice in the cultures of the ancient Near East was simply widespread rape and pillage when uh, a your enemy's city fell. It was so bad that oftentimes, you know, in siege warfare, when a city is being surrounded for a long period of time, and it looks like the the army that's attacking is about to breach the walls and enter the city, husbands would kill their wives rather hmm. than let them be subject to what was coming, you know, imminently because the enemy was coming pouring into their city. Right. And so it just tells you that. The general practice was there were no rights or protections whatsoever for women in that battle scene. And so the Bible, while the general premise is problematic for us as modern people, not just modern Christians, just as modern people, Mm -hmm. um, the Bible is actually starting to build in protections. And so relative to the cultures around Israel, the Bible is already introducing redemptive movement. It's building in protections. It's it's saying you can do this. You've dishonored her. You can't just have sexual relations with her immediately. You have to give her time, actually, to adjust to her new situation. And and then if you are not pleased with her, um, you know, there's this whole thing about you have dishonored her. So therefore, she is no longer going to be a slave if you don't want her anymore. You can't sell her as a slave and treat Mm -hmm. her as a slave. So... Uh, Again, redemptive movement relative to the places around ancient Israel. So that's why we say the first part of the redemptive movement hermeneutic is reading it in its ancient context and seeing where the Bible is vis-a-vis what other cultures were doing. And shortly after that, in Deuteronomy, there's another quick passage there about runaway slaves and what to do if uh, if one comes to you. So it says, if a slave has taken refu- refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Wow. Okay. Runaway slaves. And now, you know, yeah. you, you've already told us about the one about beating slaves. So we know the problematic nature But here we have one, again, relative to the other cultures, the Bible has like significant redemptive movement. It's kind of a place of refuge for runaway slaves. And and again, we understand when we read the Code of Hammurabi, there's a death penalty for those who help runaway slaves. Mm. So it was common and known that if you catch a runaway slaves, you can 
mutilate them, kill them, whatever you want to do to make an example to other slaves, not to run away. So it was a very serious problem in the ancient world if your slave ran away and you were allowed to do absolutely anything. There were no limits on what you could do to a runaway slave. Oftentimes they would be mutilated so that an invisible bodily mutilation so the other slaves would continually see it and be reminded of what happens if they try to run away. So right. they're trying to protect their their you know slave owning the slave owners are protecting the situation the arrangement that they have going there, and then here comes the Bible saying no if runaway slaves come into your territory, protect them, they right. get to live among you like this is amazing actually I mean in the context of the ancient world this is a remarkable achievement for slaves to find mm -hmm. this kind of protection and freedom. And that's 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 an equal part of the, the regulations in the Bible. So you have, you know, these things that are admittedly very problematic, but here you have one that is a significant movement toward a better situation for slaves compared to what, there's no other cultures that we know of that has anything like that in its regulations. Yeah. Yeah, it's so helpful. And I'm, I'm sure there's a similar thing going on there with the passage about beating slaves, right? Where I'm sure in other ancient cultures, slaves were treated basically like you treat an inanimate object, right? Just do what you want with them, kind of no consequences for the owner. If they die, they die after you beat them. That's, you know, you lost a slave, but that's your deal. Indeed. And, and it's nobody else's business, right? What you do with your slave, like at any level, right? And so even that that very disturbing sounding passages in Exodus about beating slaves, even there, there's redemptive movement. There's there's right. compared to another culture, there's a limit to what you can do there. And it's and God is, I think, implanting the idea that will grow into something bigger and even better. But compared to other cultures, you couldn't just do absolutely whatever you wanted to do with a slave. You right. had to recognize some level of dignity and humanity within them. And that's why there's regulations that put limits, limits on slave owners, which is a yeah. new thing. Yeah. It's hard for us. You know, we're we're all the way over here. I know our listeners yeah. can't, you know, see my hand gestures, but you know, we're <laughs> a couple thousand years, several thousand years down the road saying, Oh my gosh, this is barbaric, but it's kind of a hermeneutic or a you know, God's God's taking baby steps in some ways with with his people. So um so that leads us a little bit into the second part of the redemptive movement hermeneutic. We've we've covered how how some of the commands, especially in the old testament relate to the cultures around Israel. But then there's this movement within the Bible story itself. Can right. you unpack that about? Yeah. So it's a great, this is just cool. It's why it is so, so important to read the Bible as a narrative, because this is where God actually works out redemption over time. And we've made a big deal about that on this podcast. We've also made a big deal about reading through the Jesus lens. So let's take the issue of slavery. We move from the First Testament, where we've just said, relative to other cultures, it's much better. But what about what's happening within the Bible itself? So within the Bible itself, we get to Jesus and we think, okay, Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation. He is the clearest revelation of who God is and what he wants in the world. The ministry of Jesus on earth is where we see what the reign of God looks like in the world. Mm -hmm. So 
what would we expect for slavery? We thought, well, Jesus, I mean, it's such a major institution in the ancient world. Surely Jesus will address this. Yeah. But he radio, doesn't even really, radio silence. Yeah. Radio silence. He doesn't talk about it. Yeah. And and we're thinking, okay, how does that happen? Here's a great place for redemptive movement if ever there was one. And Jesus doesn't seem to even have it like be on the, the range of issues that he thinks he needs to address. Okay, so there's that. Let's hold on to that. And then we get to the letters of the apostles after Jesus, again, where we often see redemptive movement relative to the story that came before Jesus. In the letters to the apostles, we see that the apostles are writing to the churches. We see them working out what the work of Christ means for the rest of the world. That's what the apostolic letters in the New Testament are all about. What does the work of Jesus, the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross in the resurrection, the ascension, what does that mean for the rest of humanity? So again, a place you would expect to see this worked out and and moving toward God's full restoration, God's full intention for humanity. And we see them again, assuming slavery, and this again feels problematic. Yes, they're addressed as fellow believers, those household codes that we find in Paul's letters, Colossians and other books, telling the different members of a household how they should behave in relationship with each other, parents, children, slave, master, that slavery institution is still in there. And we're Mm -hmm. thinking, okay, the Bible isn't really making any progress on the slavery issue. So if the gospel really has something to say about it, why isn't it right there, right off the page in the New Testament, in the gospels and in the letters? Mm Mm-hmm. Thank God we have the book of Philemon. <laughs> hidden hidden kind of right at the back right, of Paul's letters, you know, just right, wedged this in there. This little letter, this small letter, right? Yep. How many people even think about Philemon relative to Galatians or Ephesians or right. Romans? Romans. Right, these yeah. Romans, like all this. Philemon. Philemon mm-hmm. is the place. And here we see that the kingdom of God grows like a seed. It's yep. like yeast working in dough. So here you have this runaway slave, just like that situation we addressed back in the Deuteronomy passage. And this time he's run away. Um, he's found Paul, who's in prison. And, he, and Philemon, I mean, Anesimus is, Philemon is a slave owner. Let's get this story straight. <laughs> so the, the church in Colossae meets in his house. He owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away, starts ministering to Paul, has become a believer. And so Paul now writes a letter to the church at Colossae. Remember, meets in Philemon's home. He sends the letter with Philemon, with Onesimus. Yeah. So this, you think about what this is doing. Philemon has not seen Onesimus since he's run away. Now right. he's coming back to his house, delivering the letter to the Colossians, right? To be read aloud to the church that meets in Philemon's house. Yeah. He also sends a letter about Onesimus himself, addressed directly to Philemon. Yeah, Philemon's probably, Philemon, I would imagine, you know, sees him and is thinking about Deuteronomy. Okay, how can I beat him so that he recovers within a day or two? Because that's kind of what I'm feeling like doing right now. Do I want all my slaves to run away and think it's cool? Like, no big deal? No, he can't have that, right? So what's he supposed to do? So Paul writes a letter to Philemon, addressing him as a church leader, as a slave owner, And standing before him is his runaway slave. 
And yeah. in front, and that letter was undoubtedly read in front of the whole congregation, just like the letter to the Colossians was read right. out loud. Right. And he gives him multiple reasons for why um, he should respect what Paul is saying. He says, look, I'm in prison. I'm an old man. He has all these different sympathetic reasons, right? Feel for me, all this. I have authority over you. I could command you to do this if I wanted. But the main thing that Paul says to Philemon is, you have a brother in Christ, and I want you to release him because the new unity that we share in Christ as a brand new human family on the face of the earth is more important than preserving the institution of slavery. I want you to take him back no longer as a slave, Paul writes, but as a brother yeah. who's been set free. So here, I mean, you know, you take, okay, here's one little book compared to, like, I could find 50 passages. I could quote you 50 verses in the Bible about slavery that seem to all go the other direction. Maybe redemptive movement relative to the culture. Okay, that's something. Yeah. But the abolition of slavery, right? The full flourishing of human beings in Christ, the goal of the redemption of God in the whole world, the kingdom of God. If it weren't for the letter to Philemon, we might not see where the story is going. But there it is. And there we see Paul working out for the first time. Paul, right, who's already written instructions to slaves and masters, is now working out the full meaning of what he wrote to the Galatians when he said, in Christ, there is no slave or free. So this thing has to be worked out in the story. But the point is, there's a trajectory to the gospel. And this is where the story is moving. And so people who quote Old Testament or First Testament Bible verses about slavery are not reading the Bible as the story that it is that moves toward redemption in Christ. And the full implications of what it means to be restored and saved and, and renewed in Christ are meant to be worked out by the people of God over time in their own communities, working toward more and more fullness. So there is no story of slavery in the Bible without recognizing that movement and without the little letter of Philemon at the pinnacle of the biblical story of slavery. Yeah, I love that. So, so real quick, um, you know, slavery, I think at this point for, I would hope all Christians is, is a pretty clear cut issue of gospel implications, I guess. Mm. But I, I can see maybe some of our listeners th are thinking, okay, is this just kind of a, a means for blanket across the board, sort of progressive liberation in, in every aspect of life mm -hmm. in, in light of the gospel? What would you say with William Webb and, and in his books, what stance does he take on that sort of thing? Yeah, this is really interesting because, you know, it's there's there's the error on one side of the pro-slavery Civil War Bible readers who said the Bible is full of verses about slavery, assumes it and tells us how to run it. And so therefore, the Bible is pro-slavery. The error yeah. on the other side is to say the Bible is a is a book of liberation kind of without limits. Yeah. So whatever I view as and, and in our modern individualistic Western culture. Let's be clear. Liberation mostly means doing what I as an individual think I want to do with my own life. Right. We have put the self 
as the, on the supreme seat. And we have this idea that I alone get to decide the meaning, the boundaries, if there are any, the direction of my life. All those things are just solely up to me. So if the Bible is working out this redemption over time, women, slaves, right? Pick your issue. Like if the Bible is just moving toward greater liberation, therefore the Bible supports me in whatever my personal liberation movement is. Yeah, That's easy to get there. But so let's say I actually was in a debate once at a local college on the issue of marriage. And so I said, so if I want to marry two women and an 11-year-old girl, and that's my desire as a person, and I have people who are willing to enter into this arrangement. Does the Bible support that? Is, does society support that? Do we think that I can personally define liberation however I want to and say the redemptive movement hermeneutic of the Bible supports this because the Bible is always looking for more liberation? Well, that actually is just a late modern kind of um, distortion of culture and personhood that our culture has embraced, that there's this radical individualism where I can define freedom exactly the way I want to define it. And no one, no one has a right to put limits on that. And then I like to sometimes, some people like to call in the Bible for support by um, advocating something like the redemptive movement hermeneutic, but it's a distortion of it. Because the fact is, the Bible is looking for a restoration of what God's full intentions for humanity are. And there are still going to be limits and protections, guidance and frameworks that that put us in the right place for human flourishing, rather than my individualistic I will define what human flourishing is for me, and I can enter into and create whatever relationships, arrangements I want to create. And so we have to guard against the idea on the other side that it's just pure liberation of any sort defined by anybody, but versus the kind of real redemption and restoration that the Bible you know, is is working us toward. Today, we talked about slavery. It would take a whole nother session to talk about some of the other issues right. that people use this for, but you get the idea. The Bible is a story movement, right, toward redemption, toward restoration, toward healing, toward human thriving. Yep. And that's that's how to read the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I think you mentioned earlier Webb's book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. He kind of tackles each of those. Yeah themes and, and traces them throughout the Bible's uh, narrative. And we, we covered slaves today and, and he, he talks about those other two, which I, I would say are continually talked about today. You know, the role, the, the role of women in church, Indeed. Uh, you know, sexuality issues, that sort of thing. But I think, I think the framing of the argument is better with the redemptive movement hermeneutic rather than just lobbing verses back and forth at each other. Yes. So, and you, you know, yeah, well, go ahead. I was well, just going well, to say like, you can, you can maybe take issue where, with where he lands on some of the issues in those books, but I feel like the, the framing of the argument is just better than, than it typically is framed. Yes. I mean, it, it, the adopting this hermeneutic, this way of reading the Bible as redemptive movement doesn't remove the need to actually look at passages and have a discussion. Right. It does. But like you say, it's a framework. And it's so much better than you see so often. People just don't know what else to do. So they look up a few verses 
And they think if I if I quote a Bible verse or five of them, that settles the issue. Well, what we've learned today is that does not settle the issue. You have to, we, we absolutely have to get to a place where we have the background discussion first. What kind of book is the Bible? Yep. How do we read it? How does it do its work? And then we can start talking about specific Bible passages. Yep. It just sets sets up such a better conversation that I hope I hope people can start having in, in some of these Christian thought leader conferences and stuff where mm. they're tackling thorny issues. I just think it can be done probably so much better than it has been. So, okay, great. Well, that's going to do it for us this time. We hope that you'll check out the Redemptive Movement Hermeneutic for yourselves and let us know what you think about it. I'll link to William Webb's books uh, down below in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the Bible Reset podcast, we'd appreciate if you considered joining Changemakers, which is our group of monthly supporters that help us continue our work at the Institute for Bible Reading. We've always thought of ourselves as kind of a grassroots movement leader meant to uh, meant to help self-professed regular folks who love Jesus and want to love reading scripture as well. So if our work, whether on this podcast or through Immerse, has helped you in your Bible reading journey, we'd love to welcome you into the Changemakers community. And, uh, and you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.